This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you are about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. We come to the end of the first day of the Metta Retreat together, and I'm happy to see, really happy that most of you are still here. <laughs> because beginnings of retreats are always difficult, and Metta Retreats even more so. This really came out in the interview groups uh, this afternoon. This is hard work. You know, you have to keep cranking out those phrases. It's kind of like trying to get an old Model T to start, and you just got to keep cranking and cranking, and at first, It doesn't catch automatically, and it really takes a lot of work. So a number of people in the groups were talking about that it was was tiring. Somebody said that she was suffering from phrases fatigue. (laughs) And she said, all I want to do is sit quietly. And you may have felt that today. Some people ask, can I take a Vipassana break, please? (laughs) And I think Vipassana never looks so inviting as in the middle of an early day of a metta retreat. So if you need to take a Vipassana break and sit quietly to regain your energy, it's fine to do that on the early days. (laughs) But it is amazing also that people are already really starting to engage with the practice. And despite all the difficulties and the mind swinging between extreme sleepiness and extreme restlessness in the early days, People are working and already really connecting well with the practice. Anushka was sitting in on one of the groups this afternoon, and she, she just said, it's amazing how sincerely people are doing this practice without a lot of reward as yet. So the reward will come later, but uh, I also want to appreciate the sincerity of your work today. Just in case there are any doubts about whether this really works or how it works, in the talk tonight I want to talk about what the metta practice does for us and how it does it, sort of the mechanics of how repeating these phrases over and over again can actually transform our hearts and minds. Rumi said, the great poet from Persia, said, one who does not run toward the allure of love, walks a road where nothing lives. And I'm really happy that we all are running toward the allure of love, because for me it has always been one of the most uh, motivating aspects of the spiritual path. When I was in my early 20s, I developed a lot of access to love, but I didn't know how to stabilize it. It came and it went seemingly at random, And it was uh, tremendously satisfying, some of the most satisfying experiences I'd had in my life. But I didn't know how to access it with any regularity. So for me, a lot of the pull of the whole spiritual path was trying to find out how to make that access to love more enduring and more ongoing. In our tradition, the metta practice is one of the key ways to do that, one of the most central ways to do that. So I want to talk tonight about um, five benefits of the metta practice, uh, how it affects us and shapes us. The first is that it makes the heart more responsive, or you could say more tender. We allow life to touch us more, and then we're also more able to touch life. It purifies the heart. That is, it cleans it, it scrubs it, It brightens it up and makes it shine. It develops this quality of concentration, which I think we've mentioned once or twice today. It connects us to the whole breadth of life and really all living things in a very unique way. And it has the possibility of bringing a lot of happiness. These are the five developments that I want to cover this evening.
I'll first talk about the way it uh, makes the heart more responsive, makes it more uh, alive to life. The main practice that we do here at Spirit Rock is called insight meditation or vipassana. It uses the tool of mindfulness primarily in a clear relationship with what's happening in the present moment. We think of vipassana as our wisdom practice. Wisdom is ultimately what liberates the heart and mind. So for us, we do the loving kindness practice in the context of the wisdom practice of vipassana. Nonetheless, metta has some really unique qualities to add to our spiritual development. I was sitting a retreat with a Tibetan teacher. The end of the retreats often in Tibetan practice when the student is about to go away, the teacher gives a few words of heart advice, sort of pith instructions that the student is meant to take away and live by. So at the end of our retreat, the teacher offered us these words of heart advice. And he said, when you go back into the world, remember three things. He said, first, I want you to be natural. Just be uh, kind of a you know, good-natured, down-to-earth, easy-going person. Don't go back and act like you're on some weird spiritual trip. <laughs> because if you do that, you'll go into the world, people will think that's what Buddhism is about, and they won't want to take part. <laughs> so he said, be natural. The second thing he said is, be wise. He said, take care of yourself, take care of the people around you, make good choices in your life. And the third thing he said is, when you go back, be juicy. <laughs> and he, he used that uh, when he would talk about the eyes welling up with moisture when they were touched by beauty or compassion. When you go back to your life, be juicy. This is an ancient Buddhist technical term. I want you to understand <laughs> this term, juice. It refers to a whole range of feelings that are sometimes called the devotional end of practice. So it's qualities like love, reverence, joy, devotion, compassion, humor, faith, trust, kindness, humility, awe. This range of our possible uh, emotions is what we call technically juice. So the metta practice in our tradition is the direct avenue to cultivating this juicy quality in life. Because if you think about it, these are the range of qualities that make life sweet, that make life really enjoyable. They're also the qualities, I think, that touch other people and perhaps awaken in them an interest in spiritual life. When you think about the teachers who have touched you, over the course of your spiritual path, take a look and see if some of these qualities of love and compassion and joy and humor aren't the ones that sort of caught your interest and made you want to have a little bit of what that person had. So these are the qualities by which we can touch the world also. Alice Walker, the noted author and uh, the novelist who wrote The Color Purple, said, as I get older, I realize the thing that I value the most is good-heartedness. The metta practice is the direct way in our tradition that we bring this about. And to me, it's amazing and beautiful that there are specific practices that lead in this direction. When I was young, I had no idea that there were practices that I could do that could cultivate my openness to love. I thought it was just random. And in the technology of the Buddhist teachings, there are definitely these qualities, and they work. To put it in its context, metta is one of four qualities that are called the Brahma-viharas. Brahma means uh, divine or heavenly. Vihara means home or resting place. So these are sometimes called, these qualities are called the divine abodes. And the four are metta, or loving-kindness, compassion, or karuna, joy, or mudita, and equanimity, or upeka. You'll notice these are the names that we gave to the four residence buildings when we built the retreat center. We thought about calling them the Four Noble Truths, 
but we didn't think you'd want to stay in suffering and craving, so <laughs> we decided this is a little more appealing than that. The four of these really work together with metta as the foundation. Metta is the quality that opens our heart in a very general kind of way. We use these four phrases because they lead us into a very interesting uh, reflection, investigation, and then ultimately analysis of what makes for human happiness. When you contemplate, as you will do over the next five days, what's involved in an authentic sense of well-being, of welfare for yourself and all those that you bring in to the metta, I think you'll see that every living being wants to be safe. We look at the situation in Iraq now and imagine what it would be like to try to live a daily life where you and your family had no guarantee of surviving from the morning until the evening every day of your life. It's really not possible to feel a sense of secure happiness in an environment where we're not at least physically safe. Then mental happiness, you know, we know what it's like when mental happiness isn't there, when we're plunged into anger or depression, despair, or anxiety, and we lose touch with that ability to touch the feeling of uplift, of mental happiness. And we know what happens when our health isn't available, when the body energy is low, when there's a lot of pain in the body. It really saps our ability to have the energy to be um, uplifted, to be happy. The fourth of the phrases is sometimes a little bit cryptic, this living with ease. What does it mean to live with ease? Really the sense here in the traditional phrase you'll see in the translation this evening is to take care of yourself happily. It means that you can provide for yourself, uh, your family, your responsibilities through your work in the external world. So it means that your livelihood and your relationships go well and smoothly. That's the intent of the fourth and final phrase. And you see that when all of these come together in a human life, this is what really makes for a sense of happiness, a sense of peace, contentment, and settledness. It's when these four are available. Now, obviously, there are ways to practice to do without one or another of them, but when the four come together, we're lucky, we're fortunate. Reflecting on this for ourselves and then for other people who we'll bring in trains us to see the world through the eyes of caring. It's like with each being that we bring to mind, we go, how is it for you? How is your safety, your happiness, and your health, and your ease? How's it going? It trains us to see the world through the eyes of others, and that's a big part of what awakens this tender heart. We're always thinking about, I know what my life's like now, what is it for you? Because we recognize in each being there's another whole universe of feeling and joys and sorrows. And we want that to go well as we start to tune in to the possibility. The way this transforms people was uh, brought home to me recently in a, a really uh, kind of sweet story. Someone who practices here a lot, has sat with us here a lot on the, the month longs in February was doing a retreat on the East Coast recently. And you know how you scrape your uh, leftovers from the meals into the compost bin by the dishwashing? So this retreat center also had a compost bin and there was a sign, please don't put any staples from tea bags in the compost because the compost is going to feed pigs. And so my friend looked at that and he thought, oh, and where are the pigs going? <laughs> so. He happens to be a committed vegan, and uh, he's vegan out of a deep concern for the welfare of animals, creatures who do not have their own voice, are not able to speak for themselves, and enjoy almost no rights in this culture. So he went to the cooks, and he said, uh, the compost goes to the pigs, what happens to the pigs? Because if they're being raised for slaughter, I don't want our retreat center to be a part of that. It doesn't feel congruent with our Buddhist values to take part in that chain. So the cook said, you know, I don't know what happens to the pigs, but I'll find out. 
So the cook called the neighbor who took, uh, takes the compost regularly and said, what happens to the pigs? And the neighbor said, well, you know, that's really an interesting story. <laughs> he said they were being raised for slaughter. And last December, we took them to the slaughterhouse and expected that they would be slaughtered a day or two after we dropped them off. But the day after we dropped them off, the slaughterhouse burned to the ground. Is that karmic or what? <laughs> and he said, my daughters were distraught because they had spent so much time with these pigs from the time they were young. They were really upset at the thought that the pigs had died in the fire, you know, died really painfully. So he assumed that that's what had happened. So he, he checked with the farmer and the farmer said, no, in fact, the pigs escaped the slaughterhouse and they were just running wild in the woods around there. And then we thought they'd been lost because surviving the winter in Massachusetts is not an easy thing for a creature that's not used to it. So he took his daughters in the, in the car, the truck, drove over to the site of the burned slaughterhouse went looking in the woods and they found the two pigs. They brought them home and now they're being raised as pets <laughs> because he said his daughters are so in love with them. So the scraps of compost now from the retreat center are going to feed the pigs who are pets, whose names, by the way, are Thelma and Louise. <laughs> so. That was a lovely story to come out of somebody whose heart had been awakened partly through the practice of loving-kindness, to care about the welfare of animals. And who knows what the karma of that compost did to free those two pigs. So the other, four, uh, the other three Brahma-viharas really grow out of this foundation of an open heart. As we tune into the experience of life that beings have, ourselves and others, we start to recognize that there are some uh, different primary experiences. When life is difficult and we experience suffering, when the open heart looks on that suffering, then the metta gets transformed into compassion. That's what compassion is. Compassion is the open heart that looks on the experience of suffering, our own or somebody else's. So metta and compassion are very close together. Don't be you know, too deceived by the difference in terminology. Some schools of Buddhism, including uh, Tibetan and Zen, make compassion more primary. In our tradition, we make metta more primary, but they're very closely related. The Dalai Lama explains compassion is basic human warmth, and that's exactly what we're cultivating here. But when the open heart looks on a being who's experiencing happiness and joy, then the response is what's called appreciative joy or sympathetic joy. We're happy when we see their happiness. So that's the third of the Brahma Viharas. When the open heart can simply rest, it rests in equanimity. And that's the balance of mind that's not so thrown by the changing face of pleasure and pain in life. Equanimity acts as a support for the other three. Uh, which we'll talk about as we, as we go on. As we get into the metta practice, sometimes people from a Vipassana background have kind of a philosophical quibble with it because Vipassana is so elegant, so impeccable, just aware of what is. It's absolutely clean. And metta seems a little too new agey. Could be Hallmark greeting cards. <laughs> You know, a little bit like affirmations. You know, what is this stuff? So I want to say a little bit about that. One of the Buddha's uh, primary instructions about right effort is to bring about wholesome qualities of mind. So in the metta practice, or all the Brahma-viharas, what we're doing is directly bringing about very wholesome qualities of mind. So it very much fits in what the Buddha described as right effort. Some people think metta sounds deluded. May I be happy, but you told me on the last retreat there was no I. <laughs> and you also said happiness was impermanent, and now I'm wishing it all the time. Isn't this a contradiction? So I have a phrase for the Vipassana 
uh, purists in the audience. And this, is, this can be your meta, if you like, you can use this as a metaphrase. In this ever-changing stream of mental and physical phenomena, <laughs> conventionally designated as James, <laughs> may the mind state of happiness arise on an ever more frequent basis. <laughs> so, if you like that better, you can use that. Or if you just prefer to say, may you be happy, James, you can use that too. They mean the same thing. So. But it is extraordinary when we meet somebody who has developed their heart in this way. You know, mostly, I think growing up in this culture, I didn't have any idea of what kind of development was possible for the human heart. And then when we meet people who have done this work for many years or possibly lifetimes, it's, it's mind-blowing. And the person I, I always reflect on when I think about this possibility is the Dalai Lama. As James said, he often says that his religion is kindness and he really practices it. And I think he's practiced it for a long time. Oprah Winfrey did an interview with the Dalai Lama for her magazine, O. And I really appreciate Oprah for bringing uh, a wide range of beautiful teachings into a mainstream audience. That's something that she's done really, really brilliantly. She uses a lot of the teachers from our community. Sharon Salzberg has been in O, uh, Jack, Joseph Goldstein, a lot of our teachers appear there. So she was interviewing uh, the Dalai Lama. Uh, the, for an article for the magazine. And the interview began uh, when Oprah asked the Dalai Lama, have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? And the Dalai Lama replied, small incidents, like accidentally killing an insect. Killing an insect, Oprah said, an insect, hmm, okay. The Dalai Lama continued, my attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable. <laughs> Not very peaceful. Bed bugs also. And that's it. Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly. But major mistakes, it seems, no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated, looking out the window. She fell silent. There was awe in her voice when she finally continued, you have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a good life. That's a great life to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, service to Buddhism, service to humanity, I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains, practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. That's an amazing heart. And of course, all that separates us from that is about 17 lifetimes of practice. <laughs> We're on our way. Of course, the only reason that the loving-kindness practice works for us is that this quality of metta is part of our nature. It's an intrinsic part of us. It's not something we have to fabricate. It's already there in each of us, and it's just a matter of inclining our mind and bringing it forward. One of the most loving people in my life was my grandmother. She was born in the countryside in North Carolina around 1890, and uh, there was not a strong Buddhist presence in North Carolina in 1890. <laughs> she grew up without the benefit of these teachings or psychotherapy. And yet she managed to have one of the most loving hearts that I've ever known, even though she was married to my grandfather, who is a particularly ornery character. So this is a natural quality in us. And we're trying to remind ourselves of it and incline our mind in that direction. What you'll see as the practice goes on is that the phrase is just a skillful means to help us incline the mind that way. The way Buddhist practices all work 
is if you want to develop quality X, you put yourself in quality X. There's no quality Y that's needed, you know, to get to quality X. You put yourself in quality X. So if you want to be mindful and in the present, you come into the present. If you want to develop the quality of loving kindness, you put yourself in loving kindness as best you can in this moment. And the phrases are there, the image is there, the person is there to help evoke that feeling as far as possible. This putting ourselves there over and over is really what carries out the second benefit of loving kindness, which is the quality of purification or cleaning the heart. Sharda alluded to this last night. Instead of being lost in some mind states of ill will, a judgment or criticism or craving, we substitute the metta phrases and the metta inclination for those. And so moment by moment, the mind is brought out of its habitual patterns of negativity, which bring suffering to us. And those patterns are replaced by the inclination of loving kindness. So in a way, it's really simple. The heart of the practice is, can you see yourself and sincerely wish yourself well? Can you see another and sincerely wish that other person well? There's no way to make up the sincere part of this. You know, just saying the phrase alone doesn't do it. What, what does it is saying the phrase and meaning it, bringing as much real caring to that moment as you can. So the phrases aren't used like a mantra practice. Mantra practices are great. They have a wonderfully calming effect on the mind and body, they quiet the mind and lead us into stillness and relaxation. The metta phrases aren't meant to be used in that way. It's not just the repetition of the phrase that does it, it's the sincere caring that we bring to the phrase that is the real engine of this practice. So when we can bring up a person or ourself and really care, even if it's just a little bit of caring, that's what starts to transform the heart. Because what we're grabbing hold of, and I think Sharda mentioned this also in her opening, is the factor of intention. We are intending our minds in that direction of caring. And intention is the powerful transforming element of Dharma practice whether it's intending to be in the present moment through mindfulness or intending to be uh, caring through the practice of loving kindness, intention is the, the lever that starts to shift our life. So the, the very simple way of thinking of each phrase is it's like saying to yourself or somebody else, I hope you're happy. That, that's all it is. I hope you're happy. And try to say it you know, with some meaning. And then everything goes from that. So it's this little intention that generates the power of loving kindness. And when we say it moment after moment after moment, hour after hour and day after day, that power starts to build. Those of you who have sat of Vipassana retreats will recognize this pattern from the cultivation of mindfulness. We pay attention to the present moment, moment after moment, and it develops an incredible momentum as we sustain it. So here, that momentum is generated just by the intention of caring or well-wishing. That takes the place of the intention of mindfulness in the Vipassana practice. So you can think of every one of these phrases as like planting a seed, a seed of intention. Our job is that we are the farmers. We plant the seeds and we take care of them with continuity, with patience, with diligence. But we're not the ones who can make the seeds sprout and we're not the ones who can make the seeds grow into big plants. That's nature. So our job, just remember, is only to plant the seed of this simple caring. When it grows up and flowers 
into loving kindness, that's the job of nature, or you could say the Dharma. So as you plant the seeds, let the planting be enough. Plant it with all your uh, wholehearted intention, but you don't have to try and manufacture the plant. Take what comes in its own time. So different feelings of metta will come over these days for you. Trust in that, that the planting is enough that you don't need to make the plant come out of the soil. The Dharma will take care of that. So when metta arises is not up to us exactly. We plant the seeds and then the strengthening of it is done by the Dharma. So what to look for? What are the signs of this flowering of metta? We've used the word love a lot as we've been talking about it. In some ways that um, is maybe a little too exalted for us, the word love. You know, it aims, it aims really high, that word. There's a kind of transcendent, selfless, merging quality in it. And sometimes metta will come out in that flavor, but that's kind of a peak experience. It's not the way it's going to come out most of the time. So a step down from that is the way that I mostly think of uh, metta, similar to what James said last night, friendship. Just having a friendly attitude toward what meets us, that's, that's metta. That's enough. That attitude is more accessible moment by moment, and that attitude can carry us through you know, a lot of life. I just invite you to think back over all the moments of the day today. Were there any moments that weren't met with friendliness? When the body ached, when there was noise in the building, when someone wasn't moving through the line properly, when your cushion disappeared after you'd been out of the hall. So all those moments that weren't met with a friendly attitude That's where metta can take root and change our relationship. It's really bringing that friendly attitude into every moment of life in time. So friendliness is a wonderful level of metta, but there there are cooler expressions than that. Um, Another aspect of metta that will start to appear is the quality of acceptance. You may find that there's a life situation that you've been struggling with, resisting, trying to fix. And as the days go by, someday maybe something will shift and you go, you know what? I can live with that difficult person at work. Or I can live with the way my wife stacks the dishwasher differently than I do. The revelation will come, I can make peace with that. So this quality of acceptance of things just the way they are is another flavor of metta. And it can come strongly in relationship to ourselves. Sometimes the phrase for happiness may seem too idealistic. May I be happy? But if things are not going well, maybe we can't. So then instead we say, may I accept myself just as I am? And this is more approachable. And acceptance is a really important flavor of loving kindness. And then even one notch cooler than acceptance is the quality of patience. Sometimes difficult situations still seem not what we want. And we maybe can't fully open and say, yeah, it's okay that it's that way, but we develop a new ability to endure it. And that's the quality of patience. Patience is like being able to endure a difficult situation and keep a sort of sweet frame of mind, a frame of mind that's sort of untroubled by it. So sometimes patience is the flavor of metta that comes. So start to look for these. As you drop back into the heart center after saying a phrase, see what feelings are there. Sometimes it will be one of these expressions of metta. Patience, acceptance, friendliness, or love. Sometimes it may be something else. That's fine too. Just notice what's there. Don't try to force any particular feeling to come through. This is a quotation from uh, one of my favorite teachers, Nisargadatta Maharaj, a teacher from the uh, Advaita school in India who died, I think, in the late 1980s. He said, your own intention is the backbone of your destiny. Your own intention is the backbone of your destiny. 
Ultimately, your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. This is a strong expression of what the Buddha called the law of karma. What we are doing here is shaping our character and then trusting that character of good-heartedness to shape our life. It's deep work. It's important work. We begin with self. Sharda mentioned that beautiful quotation from the Buddha about one who loves oneself will never harm another. Maharaj said something similar. Of all the affections, the love of self comes first. Your love of the world is the reflection of your love of yourself. A yogi is a person whose goodwill is allied to wisdom. So we're using wisdom to cultivate this feeling of goodwill, and we're trusting that affection to spread from ourselves out to the world. As a way of beginning, it's really helpful to get in touch with your own basic goodness. The Buddha said that the proximate cause for the arising of the feeling of loving-kindness is seeing what's good in someone, ourself or another. So in Asia, this is a very, very common reflection. As you start metta practice, reflect on your own goodness. Get in touch with your own goodness. And that makes it really appropriate that the loving-kindness comes toward you. So we've suggested a couple of ways to do it. One is to reflect on qualities you like in yourself. But sometimes I ask myself that question and the list comes up empty. So if that happens, then I reflect on some kind actions that I've done. And just two or three little things, if brought to mind, will remind you of that good heart. They don't have to be big things. You know, maybe you called a parent who was ill or aging. Maybe you uh, took some, made a special trip and took some clothes down to the Goodwill store. Maybe you telephoned a neighbor who was ill and asked if you could buy groceries. Maybe it's the 10,000 things that as a parent you did for your children. You think about those and you reflect on what was my intention in doing that. And in coming to the intention, you get in touch with that quality of caring. You were caring about somebody. And that's the seed of metta. So in touch with your own goodness, then directing the phrases to yourself. But even so, loving kindness for ourselves can bring up a lot of different memories and a lot of different feelings. Someone was commenting uh, in a group today that it brought up memories of times when they themselves had acted in ways that weren't so kind. That's one of the common things that happens. It's like as we turn to kindness and recognize it as a value, then what comes from the other side is, oh, but what about this? and a voice, a memory that brings up all the times we weren't so kind. Or we think about safety, and we remember times in our life that we didn't feel safe, that people hurt us or harmed us. So these feelings will come in doing metta practice. It's almost like we do a life review. We're kind of looking at our life now through new new lenses. It's kind of like somebody puts on these meta glasses and says, who are you now? As you see the world through the eyes of loving kindness, what do you see? And part of it is we look at our own life through the eyes of loving kindness and we see times it wasn't there in our life, maybe from outside or maybe from inside. So there's a kind of um, reevaluation that takes place because of this practice. This is an integral part of what metta does. So when these memories come, don't think you've gone off the track. It's part of what happens. But also, you don't have to make a project out of fixing them. Because what's beautiful is that as the metta grows, it holds the memories in its own friendliness. And that provides all the transformation, or you could say the healing, that's needed. So don't think you have to go out and fix them. Though we will, in a couple of days, talk about a practice of forgiveness that can help with this process. But basically, trust in the metta to hold these memories and change them. As we get in touch with our own difficulties, this then becomes a doorway to the further development of love and compassion. 
It's kind of interesting how that happens. You know, sometimes if life is too easy, we don't develop very much. And it's when we run into a little bit of obstacle that we sort of wake up and grow. I'm sure you know of the uh, Burmese democracy leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, who's been under house arrest for most of, I think, the last 14 years. The Burmese military, military dictatorship let her out for a part of a year at one point, but she was generating too much interest among the people of Burma, and so they put her back under house arrest, and, and basically she can't go out and no one can see her. She's a very committed uh, Buddhist practitioner, because Burma is a very strong uh, Buddhist country. And in fact, she's had practice interviews with some of the teachers that some of us have practiced with. Um, it's a very interesting situation for them because they can't directly talk about politics with her because the house is probably bugged. And anything that they say could get them in as much trouble as she is in. So they have to talk in very careful ways. But she's gotten uh, detailed instructions on the practice of loving kindness as we're doing it here because she's been taught by some of the teachers that we learned this practice from. And here's what she said about loving kindness. When I compared notes with my colleagues in the democracy movement in Burma who have suffered long terms of imprisonment, we found that an enhanced appreciation of metta was a common experience. We had known and felt both the effects of loving kindness and the unwholesomeness of nature's lacking in loving kindness. The loving kindness has become a really integral part of her practice, and she extends that practice to the military leadership. So as the metta develops, you know, one of the things we notice about love is that it has this tremendous integrating energy. Love unifies. It pulls people together. It pulls couples together. It pulls nations together. could pull a whole planet together. And it pulls our psyche together. When love comes into being in our psyche, parts of ourselves that we pushed away and rejected become able to be held, embraced, and accepted. So love has this wonderful um, quality of putting us back together. I don't know if you've experienced this in your Vipassana practice, but it has the effect of taking us apart. It's very interesting. You know, we look at the six sense bases or the five aggregates, and it takes us into our constituent elements. And then love kind of puts all that back together. And that's a way we can appreciate this uh, famous quote, again, from Nisargadat Maharaj, who said that love tells me I'm everything, and wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two poles, my life flows. This is kind of the flow of our metta and vipassana practice. Vipassana shows us that we're nothing. Loving kindness shows us that we hold everything. And this is very healing. This really does put our hearts back together. There's this beautiful poem from Galway Canal called St. Francis and the Sow. He says, Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. This is what the loving-kindness practice is doing for us. It's reteaching us our own loveliness because we discover that quality, the beautiful quality of metta within our own hearts. The third of the powers of loving-kindness is the development of concentration. This practice develops two qualities primarily. One is loving-kindness, and the other is concentration. By coming back to the phrases again and again, we're providing a single focus for the attention, and that unifies the mind. It collects the mind around the phrases. So start to investigate in your practice, what does it feel like when the mind collects around the phrases? What does it feel like when the phrases can go for a few repetitions and they're uninterrupted by other distracting thoughts? This is the, the factor of concentration coming into play. And begin to investigate what does it feel like in your body? What does it feel like in your mind 
when that happens. We'll talk about this more as the retreat goes on, but you can start to explore this already. The fourth development through uh, loving kindness is connection. Loving kindness practice connects us to all of life. With our Vipassana practice, it, it can open this way, it ought to open this way, but sometimes it can become a little self-enclosed where we focus on uh, my pain, my suffering, my mindfulness, my awakening, my liberation. But metta practice can't let us stay in that narrow view. It has to open us out to the rest of life. This is from Shantideva, an 8th century Indian teacher. Whatever joy there is in this world, all comes from wanting others to be happy. And whatever suffering there is in this world, all comes from wanting only myself to be happy. So loving kindness is where we practice this wanting others to be happy. And we find out there's a tremendous joy in that connection to life. One of the insights we come to, I think uh, Sharda might have mentioned this too, is we find that we're all very much the same organism. You know, we have all these (laughs) distinctions that society is based around, like gender, age, race, language, culture, religion. But if you look at it, we're all basically a human being with two eyes, a nose, a mouth, two arms, and two legs. We have the same package of emotions. We have the same vulnerability to the sufferings of life. We are basically the same being that's been poured into different vessels. And all the distinctions are real because each of them conditions us in a different way. It's not to deny the reality. But when you look more deeply, they're superficial. And they, they don't change that underlying sameness that we all share. The brightness of the light that shines out through each pair of eyes that we are here. So metta reconnects us to that truth. I'd say this is maybe the deepest insight from the Brahma-vihara practices. They make us realize that very deeply we're more than just connected. We share the same heart. Both James and Sharda, I think it was in the late 80s or early 90s, traveled to India and had a number of wonderful meetings with an Indian teacher named Punjaji sometimes called Papaji, um, who a number of the teachers in our circle also went to visit and learned a lot from. And this is a beautiful quote from, uh, from Punjaji about this underlying unity. He was asked one time about bringing peace into the world. And he says, as long as there are two, there will be war. And what he meant was as long as there are two in our minds, there will be war. And so the real way through conflict is seeing our deep connection, our deep unity. Finally, I'd just like to talk a little bit about the happiness that comes from loving-kindness practice. One of the happiest people I know is a Thai teacher named Ajahn Jimnian, who usually comes to Spirit Rock every spring. Unfortunately, this year he had uh, some intestinal a difficulty, he had to have surgery, and he wasn't able to make the trip. Um, but he is, a, he is a joyful presence. He's about 65 or so years old and has done meditation from the time he was four. He was kind of a prodigy. He was trained in both Vipassana and loving-kindness practice, and he has the, the energy and the joy and the friendliness that comes from deep, deep cultivation of loving-kindness. One of the transmissions he makes in English, because he doesn't speak a lot, is the union of his Vipassana and his metta understanding. He touches the space and he goes, empty, empty. And he touches it again and he goes, happy, happy. <laughs> empty, empty, happy, happy. And that's his transmission. 
he'll be at Spirit Rock and uh, teach in one of the lower hall or the upper hall. And somebody might ask him, Ajahn Jimni, and what would you like to do today? Would you like to go to San Francisco or go to the ocean? And he'll say, are there people who'd like to hear the Dharma? <laughs> he says, if there are people who'd like to hear the Dharma, I'd really be happy to share the Dharma. But if there's nobody who wants to hear the Dharma, I'm happy to go to San Francisco or the ocean. Whatever you would like, I'm always happy. He says that he hasn't experienced anger in 25 years. And he has that kind of energy that that, that is believable. As the loving kindness starts to open up in our hearts and we, we feel it as an integral part of us, we recognize it as our own nature, it gives a really reassuring sense that deep down, fundamentally, maybe we're okay after all. And maybe all the self-judgment that we piled on ourselves was mistaken. When we can touch this loving heart, we know that the goodness is alive in us. And it completely undercuts the sense of inadequacy, failure, or self-criticism. So this is one of the, um, one of the great benefits of the loving-kindness practice. It brings a sense of inner completeness that we feel we can settle into. We don't have to go searching for our satisfaction outside ourselves, but we feel it as a refuge within us that we can let the mind drop into and rest in and becomes more and more over time the place that we abide in. Why these are called the divine abidings or divine abodes. As one teacher put it, there is nothing else to search for Rest in your natural face. This is the feeling of loving-kindness. Oprah finished her interview with the Dalai Lama by posing this question. She said, in my magazine, I do a column called What I Know for Sure. And you may have seen this column. I've seen it a few times in, in O. So she asked the Dalai Lama, what do you know for sure? The one thing on which you have no doubt. The Dalai Lama did not hesitate. Compassion is the best source of happiness for a happy life and a happy world. There is no doubt. Let's just sit for a minute together, please, in silence. Compassion, or metta, is the best source of happiness for happy life and happy world. Thank you for your attention. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 14, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.